You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I got whipsawed pretty good this weekend. Not as sexy as it might sound. Whipsaw, to beset or victimize in two opposite ways at once. I wasn't victimized, but I was beset or besetted or besotted first by Kate Julian's fascinating new long, long, long ass read in The Atlantic, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? Julian, in this piece, looks into why young people are having so little sex these days. She calls it the sex deficit. Kids today, losing their virginities later in life and as young adults likelier to live with their parents or live alone. Until recently, most people became sexually active in high school. Today, most people make it out of high school with most or all of their hymens intact. And I mean literal and or symbolic and or metaphysical hymens, and we all have them. Which is odd, considering that we live in quote-unquote permissive times. As Julian writes, Grinder and Tinder offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. The phrase, if something exists, there is porn of it. Used to be a clever internet meme. Now it's a truism. BDSM plays at the local multiplex. Anal is fifth base. Sexting, statistically speaking, is normal. Polyamory is a household word. Shame-laden terms like perversion have given way to cheerful-sounding ones like kink. With the exception of perhaps incest and bestiality and, of course, non-consensual sex more generally, our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation. More permissive. That's true. But here's the thing about permissiveness that a lot of people miss – You're giving people permission not just to choose to have sex, but to choose not to have sex. It's not about one right choice for all. Hey, everybody, fuck. It's the choice that's the right for the individual at any given time. And someone might choose no one and nothing for now and a lot of anal and a kinky polyamorous relationship for later. Lest anyone think this is a problem, all those young people out there not having sex only in the United States where – The ISIS-ish puritanism of the pilgrims continues to warp our sex lives and our politics. Julian lets us know that sex is trending down pretty much everywhere from the United States to the Netherlands, from Finland to Japan. And while two decades ago major publications were instructing us all to pour out into the streets and panic about the sex kids were having, anybody else remember rainbow parties? Today we need to pour out into the streets and panic about the sex kids aren't having. As Julian writes, if people skip a crucial phase of development, one educator warned, a stage that includes not only flirting and kissing, but dealing with heartbreak and disappointment, might they be unprepared for the challenges of adult life? I read that and thought, okay, so basically everyone's a gay kid now. It used to be just the gay kids who made it to young adulthood without ever having dated or flirted or fucked or gotten broken up with. We watched our straight peers and siblings with the encouragement of parents, educators, and the culture date, go steady, hook up, lose their virginities, all of them, and learn to deal with heartbreak and disappointment. And for the most part, we gay kids didn't get to do any of that and still don't in places or in families where it's not safe for young gay kids to be out. That's why high school-like drama tends to characterize the dating lives of a lot of young gays and lesbians. Because as young adults, we have to make all the same mistakes and learn all the same lessons that straight kids did back in high school and middle school. So back to Julian. What's to blame for the sex deficit? Why is every kid a gay kid now? Julian's piece can be read as one very, very long perp walk with all the suspects trotted out. 
Time-sucking dating apps, too many choices, porn, helicopter parenting, Instagram, overscheduled kids, a kind of Me Too-induced paralysis. Men are still expected to initiate, but many young men are so worried about being creepy or the consequences of being creepy, or worse, that they can't initiate so much as a conversation. Julian trots them all past us, and it is a fascinating read, and I would encourage you to go to theatlantic.com and read it. I have some suggestions on how we might address this crisis Thoughts about how we might bring youth sex back up to levels where we can return to panicking about how much sex the youths are having, which I will dive into on another show. All right. If Kate Julian's piece in The Atlantic was the whip, this from NBC News, which I read the same day, was the saw. Driverless cars will lead to more sex on the road, study says. This isn't presented as a good thing. It's not, hey, these driverless cars could solve the whole kids aren't having enough sex today problem. No, fucking in driverless cars is a problem because people are going to have sex in there. Some people might even get paid to have sex in them, their driverless cars. So I went right in one sitting from, oh, my God, people are having too little sex to, oh, my God, people might start having sex in cars. Ah. To everyone out there who's worried about driverless cars because some people might fuck in them, you could say the same thing. Oh, my God, someone might have sex in there about houses. Apartments, dorms, hotel rooms, cruise ships, tents. Basically, name any form of human habitation and people are fucking in there. People fucking phone booths, stairwells, airplanes, confessionals. People already fucking cars. Right now, 60% of Americans report having had sex in a car at least once. Oh, you know what else contributes to? People having sex inside things? And sometimes sex for money? Doors, curtains, walls, roofs, tear it all down, tear everything down. We have to stop people from fucking in there. H.L. Mencken famously described Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Looks like we may have to amend that definition. The haunting fear that to someone somewhere might be fucking in there. Put that on the Puritan to fear list. All right, please go read Kate Julian's piece in The Atlantic. It's a fascinating read. And please skip, driverless cars will lead to more sex on the road, study says at NBC News. You don't need to read that. Oh, and speaking of Puritans and pilgrims, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope you have a delicious dinner on Thursday. Hope there's not too much fighting about politics around the table. And remember, on Thanksgiving, as with all feast days, you want to fuck first. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, Linda K. Klein joins us to talk about her book, Pure, and the ways the purity movement in evangelical communities harms women and girls. That's on the Magnum. Hi, Dan. I have a high school friend that I lost touch with long time ago, I moved to the same general area that she was living in a few months ago, back in June. Um, we reconnected, started hanging out a little bit. She got engaged a few months later. She asked me to be the maid of honor in person, on the spot. I hadn't met her fiance. I said yes. I asked, you know, what the expectations were. She told me just, you know, the weekend of the wedding, show up, no plans involved. You know, just very low-key kind of stuff. Um, she's very deferential to the men in her life, and she's not very political. And I knew she has a conservative bent, but wasn't really that political. Um, and then I met her fiancé, and he was very nice and makes her very happy. They have a great relationship. She had been in abusive relationships before, 
So definitely great for a great relationship. But he is a Trump supporter and she has become not very vocal to me because she knows my political leanings. But, you know, now I'm having some buyer's remorse about agreeing to be her maid of honor. I would consider going to the wedding to support them because I do think they have a good relationship. But I was just I feel really weird about being in the wedding, especially everything that's happened in the past week. Everything just feels scary. And I just don't want to be this ends up being a World War II Nazi situation. I don't want to be in a Nazi adjacent wedding and be in those pictures and have that with me for the rest of my life. I feel like a bad friend. But we're not that close, and it kind of just feels like I was the most convenient person around for her to ask to be your maid of honor. I just don't know what to do, Dan. Let me know what you think. Let's set aside the Nazi adjacentness of all this. And increasingly, backing Trump is not so much Nazi adjacent as Nazi infused, Nazi flavored, Nazi adjacent. Even if there wasn't this political dimension to your predicament, it was oddly manipulative of your former friend with whom you had just reconnected to ask you to be her maid of honor out of all the other people she might have chosen because it did put you on the spot. And it, in a friendship way, was asking you to make a kind of premature commitment. And premature commitments are manipulative and they aren't always, but they are often a red flag in a romantic relationship that you are perhaps being courted by an abuser. The extraction of a premature commitment during the honeymoon infatuation stage of the relationship often goes hand in hand with isolating a person. And it is often an abuser's first move. It's how they test the waters. So they can extract a premature commitment from you, a commitment that once made, you will be reluctant to unmake because you don't want to lose face and you don't want to go back on your word and blah, blah, blah. And it really puts somebody back on their heels, puts them in a disadvantage in a relationship. And your friend, although this is not a romantic relationship, kind of pulled the same premature commitment on you when she asked you to be her maid of honor. That's a hard thing to say no to. And yet you're going to have to say no to her now. You can dodge it. You can say, you know, we only just reconnected. We weren't friends for a very long time. And I shouldn't have said yes because I don't feel worthy. I don't feel as if I deserve to be your maid of honor. There must be other people in your life, siblings, even your mom, who are more deserving of being your maid of honor because they've been there at your side throughout your life offering their friendship and support, which is really what the maid of honor gong, what that honor is all about. It's about recognizing not the relationship you hope to have with someone going into the future, but the relationship you have had with someone throughout the course of your life, or at least through the course of the relationship. And you don't know this dude she's marrying from Adam. And then you can go into this dude that she's marrying, that you've come to know a bit, and you are not comfortable with his politics, which are increasingly her politics. And so you kind of don't approve of this union because she's getting Trumpified by insemination. And you're not into that. You're not into Trumpification by insemination or any other means. That will, of course, burn the relationship down. But how much of a relationship do you have with this person? I think you should burn it down. I think the Trumpkins need to know that there are consequences. Elections have consequences. Erections have consequences. And there are consequences Aligning yourself with a patently racist, nativist, nationalist political movement that is not just dividing the country, but destroying our democracy, destroying the Atlantic Alliance, destroying NATO, and destroying the fucking planet. 
So, yeah, Ova up and tell her the fucking truth. You were uncomfortable. You said yes. You should not have said yes. She should not have asked you. She should have put you in this position. But now that you've come to know her fiancé, you are not pro this union. And it would be a lie. And you would be a hypocrite standing up there and serving as her maid of honor. Saying all that will, of course, get you off the hook from having to go to this wedding at all. So there is that added benefit. Hey, Dan. I am a bisexual woman in my 30s, and I recently started seeing someone. It's pretty much exclusively like a sexual relationship, and it's really, really good, and I feel really good, and this guy treats me really nicely. The problem is, is that this guy is a homophobe, pretty much not from the U.S. He's from a country where it's illegal to be homosexual. He's of a Muslim background. Not that all Muslims are homophobes, but I've kind of been through this before where I've dated guys who are from another culture where it's more acceptable to be homophobic. And I really want to keep seeing this guy. I think that he's mostly a good guy. I think that his feelings are mostly cultural but I guess I'm just wondering what your perspective is in a situation like this where that person's perspective is largely because of the culture they come from. He doesn't hate gay people. He doesn't bash them. He doesn't think that uh, their rights should be taken away to be gay, but he thinks that it is a problem for society and a problem for those people. And... By association is a problem for me. What's the ethical thing to do, Dan? Do we have to not have sex with people who don't agree with homosexuality? And why? And what is the way out? If we don't interact with these people, if we don't have sex with them, what do we do? And if we don't see them, what is the reason that we give them? I don't want to give this up, but I understand the implications. You frame this problem as if you have no skin in the game, as if it doesn't really impact you. Always and everywhere, homophobia is misogyny's snot-nosed little brother. He can't have an issue with gay people without having an issue with women people, with people like you. And perhaps his misogyny hasn't surfaced yet in a palpable way, but I promise you it will. So you should work on this and you should – Make explicit to him the link between homophobia and misogyny because homophobia is the hatred of gay men for what? Often, almost always, invariably for being like or seeming like or behaving like or taking on the sexual roles of women, of being like a girl, of being passive, of being penetrated, of being into dick or having dick into you and Never in my experience over all of these years of living and also advising have I encountered a woman who's partnered with someone who was a homophobe who didn't in the end realize they were partnered with someone who hated her as much as he hated faggots. So you need to have a conversation with this guy recognizing that if you're into him and he's into you, you have leverage. And you should go to him and say, look, you have to work through this and you have to get past this if you want to be with me. And that's not a favor you're doing me and all the other faggots in the world. That is you advocating for yourself. 
because you don't want to be with someone who hates you. And I promise you, if your boyfriend, for cultural reasons, religious reasons, whatever the fuck reasons, hates me, he hates you too on some level. And at some point in the course of your relationship, if you're together for years and years and years, that will manifest and you will pay a price. Straight ladies, bye ladies. When a guy tells you he hates or fears gay people or disapproves of gay people or thinks they're a problem for society and our gayness is a problem for us ourselves, he is giving you actionable intelligence. He is telling you something very important, not about his relationship with your gay besties or how he feels about the fags podcast that you listen to, but how he feels about you. And you need to act on that intelligence. Not saying you can't date him. I'm not saying you can't try to fuck some sense into him. The world is filled with people. My family is filled with people who were homophobic and are not now. Whose homophobia, in my family's case, was rooted in a religious tradition, rooted in culture, and they got past it because I insisted. There's a chance that he can get past it too if you insist. And if you insist and he does not get past it, if he doesn't work through his homophobia, don't date him, girl. Doesn't like you any more than he likes me. Hey, Dan, this is a 21-year-old gay cis dude calling from the American Southeast. So I have a question about virginity. For a little bit of background, I was raised as this typical Southern Christian private school kid. My dad and I went on this quote-unquote vacation once where I basically had to promise him point blank I'd never sleep with a girl if I wasn't married to her. Passport to purity, if you want to look it up. So eventually I get out of the church, I come out to myself, and I soften up to this idea that, okay, my first doesn't have to be someone I'm married to, but someone that I'm deeply in love with. Cut to February, I'm impatient, and I'm sick of being a virgin, and I download Grinder and I talk to this guy while I'm cocky and not 100% sober. He's about three times my age, but I guess I thought I was being bold and taking control of my own wants or something. Uh, we fuck at his place with a condom. We take a break. But when we start back up, he doesn't put on a new condom or any condom. I notice, but he's bigger than me. He's on top of me and we're in his house. Honestly, he could have just as easily killed me if that was his intention. So I don't say anything. He finishes inside me and I don't even finish and I get out and I freak out because I realize I could have HIV or something. I get tested for everything the next week. Thank God it came up clean. And I text him a quick, that was a shitty thing to do. I hate you forever. Bye. And I still can't help but feel that I fucked up. It's November and I'm still thinking about how I wasted my gift on this one asshole that I kind of deserved it for taking a risk I was warned about. And in my liberal college brain, I know virginity is a construct, that this was one bad time, that this won't happen again. But in my bleeding liberal heart, I'm still hurt, and I'm still worried something might happen again if I let myself have the sexual freedom I sometimes want. So my question is, how do I get over this? Is this trauma? Internalized homophobia? And to the listeners, what are your stories of terrible and traumatic first times? The few stories that I have heard sound a lot more perfect and romantic than mine. I need perspective. Thanks. Um, so I just listened to your call and it's heartbreaking and my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry that you had such a negative experience, particularly uh, with your first time. You know, it sounds like you're in a lot of pain and and I'm glad that you went and got tested for everything. 
Uh, and that, you know, I wouldn't say you're clean because that implies people who have sexually transmitted infections are filthy or dirty. Um, you're, you're, you're negative for everything that you would like to be negative for. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So besides the disappointment and perhaps psychological trauma of the experience, there's not going to be any lasting physical consequences for you, right? Right. Which is what I was worried about. Yeah. And, and that's a big worry to, to, to be able to, to set aside, um, you ask how you can get over this trauma and one of the constructive ways you can get over the trauma of a really negative experience is by learning its lessons and taking away the right lessons. And one thing you mentioned is the wrong lesson to take away that you had this gift to give and you gave it once and it's gone because that's really buying into all sorts of negative horseshit that, that, that just, that purity culture, that the faith that you were raised in is just shot through. That somebody who's had a sexual experience, negative or positive, is like a, a used Kleenex and has no value anymore because virginity is the be-all and end-all. It is the ultimate gift that one person can give another in the context of a romantic or sexual relationship. And that's just not true. And you have to let that go along with the faith that you walked away from. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, people talk about their virginity card, singular, as if they have one. Um, and I always talk about the virginity deck. So if you are disappointed that, you know, you gave this thing away and you only had one of it to give away and it's gone forever, well, really that's not true. And, you know, often gay people are more in touch with the idea that virginity is a spectrum, along with goddamn everything else. Because, you know, in my experience, I lost my quote-unquote virginity with a woman, my first sexual experience with a woman. And then I had sex with a guy. And it was sort of like losing my virginity over again. I was doing things I hadn't done before. I was doing the things I wanted to do with someone I wanted to do them with. And it was uh, of a different quality, the experience. And, you know, I encourage people to think, you know, you have a mutual masturbation virginity card. You have an anal sex virginity card. You have an oral sex virginity card. You have a romantic sort of makeout session virginity card. You have the, you know, the first relationship, first love card to give away too. You have this whole, you know, then there's all the kinks and all the different kinds of experiences that you can have with somebody you feel safe and comfortable with. And there's, you realize that there's just not this, you know, before and after. There's just not this one thing that, you know, this door you walk through and you can never walk back out that door again. You can have new experiences and explore new things with someone that you feel better about and safer with. And explore the thing that you explored with this jerk with someone else and feel better and differently about it. Because it being, you know, it happening in anal intercourse, you being penetrated, if, that, if that's, you know, what you want to experience, that happening in a way where you feel safe and respected and valued and cared for. And the other person isn't a, a selfish fucking manipulative piece of shit. You're going to feel differently about that experience. And in a way, it's going to be a first time experience because you'll be having that kind of intercourse for the first time with someone who values and respects you. That's the, uh, that's the goal. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, you, you also mentioned that, you know, you hear from everybody about how wonderful and glorious their first time experiences are. And you have to recognize that your, your sample is skewed because people who, you know, had that first experience, they lost their virginity, their first sexual encounter or relationship was positive. It went well or it was really fun or it was a great story. Those people are going to share those stories. People whose first experiences are often rooted in trauma 
they don't run around blabbing about it at parties with acquaintances and friends. They don't share that story when it's rooted in trauma unless you're a confidant and someone that they can trust. And so we hear a lot more lost my virginity, hilarious stories than we hear lost my virginity, complicated stories or traumatic stories or, you know, stories that left us, you know, experiences that left us feeling really conflicted that we then had to work on and unpack and understand so we could feel better about ourselves and better about being a sexual person again with someone else who's going to treat us better. So, don't look at you know, all the stories you've heard from your friends about their first times and think, oh, my God, I am the only person in the world whose first time was awful because that's not true. I think you're right about the sample size thing. I don't even hear much of anything about the sex lives of even other straight people, much less other gay people uh, from where I am in my life right now. Then, then where did you get this impression uh, that the, everybody's else's first time experience was a positive experience? Like all bad things that I get in my life, probably from the internet. <laughs> well, you got that asshole off the internet, right? And you you have to be careful about what you take away from the internet. I'm not faulting you. You know, sometimes we do our due diligence and we use our best judgment. And we still find ourselves in bed with jerks. I do think that at least for now, you need to raise your bar a little bit higher when you want, you know, you get horny and you want to be sexual with someone advocate for yourself in the moment that's one of the you know you get over this trauma one of the ways to like get over a trauma is to try to learn the lessons from it that will leave you safer in the future right and and that doesn't mean you know we're in you know being safer in the future doesn't mean immunized from all risk and so if a bad thing happens to you again in the future it's your fault and you didn't learn the lessons but you have to mitigate your risks and mitigate your you know your potential emotional risk in an encounter. And so getting together with somebody you barely knew and you didn't know if you could trust. And then he demonstrated that you indeed could not trust him. That left a bad taste in your mouth, bad load in your ass. And so don't do that in the future. Raise the bar a little bit. You had a bad experience when you were impulsive and jumped into bed with someone you didn't know. So tell somebody if you meet them on Grindr or anywhere else, I want to get to know you a bit first. And if that's the bar yeah. they have to clear to get in your pants, that's the bar they have to clear to get in your pants. And there are some guys on Grinder who want dick right now and some guys in bars or wherever else you're meeting guys who want dick right now who are not going to want to do the work that will earn them you. But you don't want to be with somebody who wants to rush you into bed, particularly right now, because you won't feel safe. And so the guys that who just want dick right now, you don't want to be with anyways. So you're not losing anything if – you know, some guy on Grinder pings you and you say, well, I would want to talk with you and maybe meet up first and get to know you a little bit. And he bails like, OK, that's not somebody you wanted to be in bed with. That's somebody in a hurry. That's somebody being selfish and not wanting to take into consideration your needs. Who does that remind you of? I'm going to say an asshole. Yeah, that asshole reminds you of that asshole, too. So don't fear rejection from similarly situated assholes. Welcome it. Because the sooner you get rejected by all the assholes that you don't want to go to bed with, who don't deserve to go to bed with you, the sooner you're likely to wind up in bed with somebody who isn't going to treat you like that and that you'll be safer with. That said, in the moment, I want to encourage you to do this in the future. There's not a condom on his dick. Hey, what are you doing? I, I said condoms only. I have had to say that 
everybody I know who's a gay man has had to say that. Nobody I know who's a gay man has said that and been beaten to death by the person that they're with. Even in an anonymous encounter, even where there's a large age difference and a power differential there, it is rarely the response of somebody who tried to go for it without a condom when they get pushback to get violent in gay male sex cultures. So advocate for yourself in the moment. Disinhibit around saying what it is you want, what it is you need. And if you're with somebody in the future and you feel, ah, something's happening and I don't like it and I want it to stop but I'm afraid, remember how bad you felt after the fact, right? Right. And so advocating for yourself in the moment, even if it ruins the evening, is how you avoid the trauma after the fact. And you would rather ruin that moment than have to deal with the repercussions and fallout from that moment. Right? Right. So that's the lesson to take away from this. You're going to, the two lessons, set a higher bar for getting in your pants. You want to get to know a guy better and promise yourself that you will never again fail to advocate for yourself in the moment. All right. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm really sorry this happened to you. And, and he's the jerk. And you did nothing wrong. And I'm not trying to guilt you for not advocating for yourself in that moment. This is a skill that people learn. And learn after I've gotten out of the church and learned that it's okay to be a gay man who is inherently worth something. Inherently worth something. And it's okay to have sex for pleasure. And it's okay to hook up. 80% of gay relationships start online through hookup apps. So it is often the route to a gay relationship, not the only route to a gay relationship. And that there's such a thing as a successful short-term relationship, successful long-term relationship, and they are equally valid. And sex for pleasure is valid. Get the only gay sex there is is sex for pleasure. We can't make babies. And it creates intimacy. Like sex between two men does everything that sex between a man and a woman does except make the baby. And straight people have sex all the time for all the other reasons people have sex or the majority of the reasons that people have sex. People rarely have sex to make a baby every once in a while. That's why straight people when they're about to make a baby begin to qualify it. Hey, we're trying to make a baby. We're not just having sex. We're trying to make a baby now. The rest of the time they're just trying to get off, have fun, be intimate, connect show their love and affection for a person. And all of those reasons are valid. And those are the same reasons that we have sex equally valid when we do it. I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry this was done to you. It means a lot, Dan. Well, I, I'm glad I caught you and, and please don't let one asshole ruin you or leave you fearful or paralyzed. Just take it slower next time. You can also one way to take it slower, not into anal right now. Just oral mutual masturbation rolling around. Just take anal off the menu. At least the first time you get together with somebody. Good luck. Thank you. Hi, Dan. There's a guy that I want to date so very bad. I really like him. But he seems to be too busy in his job. And he keeps telling me, kind of putting me off, telling me that it's his job, that he can't necessarily talk to me right away, or he can't come over for dinner right away because he's so busy at his job. But I really like him and I don't know what to say to him because I don't want to say the wrong thing and end up losing him because I said the wrong thing. I'm kind of looking for some advice here. What should I do? 
I don't know for sure if you've been white lied, but I do know that you have to assume and get on with your life as if you've been white lied. And what I mean by that, of course, is when someone says it's not you, it's me. When someone says this is the wrong time, when someone says I just got out of a relationship, I'm too stressed out with work or whatever. In response to I'd like to date you or see you. Maybe that's true every once in a while. Maybe they are just too busy for love and sex. But in the vast majority of cases, what that means is they're just not interested in you and never will be. So it doesn't matter what you say. You can't say the wrong thing and lose a shot at someone that you didn't have a shot at in the first place. That said, on the off chance that he isn't white lying you, on the off chance that it's true that he's just too stressed out and busy at work right now to even have dinner, what you tell that person is just the straight up truth. I'm really interested in dating you. You say you're really too busy right now to date. When things settle down and you have more time, if you're interested in me, give me a call. I'd be ready then to hang out if I am single then. If I'm still available for dating, I would be so happy to date you and get to know you better. And then you get on with your life. Then you date other people. Then you don't sit there home alone by the phone. Not that people have to sit at home alone by the phone anymore. Everywhere we go, we are alone with our phones. You don't wait for him to call. You assume that it'll never happen and you get on with your life. And then if he does give you a call in six months or a year and you are single and he is single and you begin to date, well, isn't that lovely? But you haven't wasted that year pining and waiting for him to call. You have gotten on with your life. And perhaps you've met somebody else. You've met somebody who's interested in you, interested in you right now, available for the occasional meal right now. I don't care how busy people are. People still need to fucking eat. And you didn't miss out on that opportunity, on that chance with that new person because you were waiting for that other person because they might call. You just have to operate under the assumption that they are never going to call. And then it's a pleasant surprise if you're single and they call. But let me reassure you again, there is nothing that you can say in this circumstance that would be the wrong thing to say. Nothing you can say in this circumstance that would cost you a shot at this guy because you don't have a shot at this guy. That's what you have to tell yourself. I have no shot. This is not going to happen. So nothing I say is really risking anything. So I'm just going to blurt it out and say what I want to say, say what I need to say. Interested in you. Give me a call when you have more time if you're interested in me. And then move the fuck on. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 25-year-old kinky and non-monogamous trans woman from the Pacific Northwest, and I'm calling for a piece of advice. About two years ago, I danced with an acquaintance at a party, and we ended up planning a date together after swiping right on Tinder. She's absolutely gorgeous, goofy, hilarious, and an amazing artist. Unfortunately, she had to cancel for completely legitimate reasons, and we didn't reconnect until about two weeks ago when we matched on Tinder again in a new city where we both happened to live. Our first date um, a week and a half ago was one of the best dates I've ever had in my life. We watched a movie together, shared desserts and coffee at a coffee shop, kissed a few times, and closed down the coffee shop before I took her home. I asked if she was dating anyone else, and she told me about being non-monogamous, which completely jives with what I'm into. I called her a few days later, offering to make her dinner, which she told me was one of the most memorable dining experiences she's ever had, and uh, me being Italian, that meant so much to me. During our second date, I asked if I could kiss her after she said something super cute, and that's when she said that we needed to talk. 
Um, she told me that she's had a huge pressure on me for the past few years since we met and is feeling very tender and vulnerable right now with some current medication changes and isn't sure if she feels comfortable casually dating me. I told her that I have had a crush on her for a long time as well. And while I'd be open to casually dating if she was, I'm more interested in seriously dating and working towards a partnership. Um, she told me that she felt like she could seriously date me as well. And she wanted to honor those feelings by not pressing on the gas pedal towards a relationship. And even though she really wants to zoom into relationship landia quickly as well, she wants to take things slow by being friends um, for an indefinite amount of time. So I'm bummed because I was excited to explore sexuality together and to see if we drive on that level. I'm also kind of bummed because I felt ready to test the waters on dating her more seriously and she isn't ready. But at the same time, um, you know, it's not like she is not open to that in the future. And I'm really proud of her for expressing her needs. And that type of maturity is something I find incredibly attractive. At the same time, um, I also feel more grounded in my emotional responsibility, and it feels like a really mature start uh, to a you know person-to-person relationship, and I've never started things by moving slowly. I'm wondering if you have any advice on moving forward as a friendship when two people are really into each other but maybe shouldn't smash bits right at this moment? Do I need to disclose this to other people I may end up dating, that I may have some maybe serious partnership bubbling with someone who I'm friends with right now, or is that being too presumptuous about how our friendship may turn out. Years ago, when Terry and I were thinking about adopting, there was one point of conflict uh, that we wanted to resolve, and we went and saw a couple's counselor. We sat there on the couch, chit-chatting with each other, Terry and I, and about 45 minutes into our 50-minute session, the counselor interrupted us to inform us that we didn't really need her, that we were able to converse about this calmly and hear each other, and that she had no refereeing to do, and she was happy to sit and listen to us process this, but she didn't feel like we needed to pay for it because we were capable of hashing this out on our own. And that came back to me as I listened to your call. You seem so in touch with your feelings and very articulate about them and very reasoned and you have passionate feelings for this person, but you're able to assess them dispassionately, which is a, a really terrific skill that will benefit you over the course of your life. And if she's being honest with you about where she's at and her feeling vulnerable, interested but vulnerable, new meds, um, and not in a place right now where she wants to initiate a romantic relationship but would like to explore a friendship in hopes of that perhaps becoming a romantic relationship down the road – Yeah, it just sounds like you're both communicating really well and you don't need me. And unlike the previous caller, this does not seem like a white lied situation. And unlike the previous caller, my this is a white lie situation. She said it's not you, it's me. This is the wrong time. I'm too busy, but I'm interested, but I'm not. doesn't seem like that's what's going on here. It seems like she may actually be open to this friendship. You sound a little bit more sure and certain about your feelings for her. It could be that she's just not as certain that she reciprocates those feelings or maybe not at the intensity level that you're experiencing them now. And she would like to just get to know you better in a commitment-free context where she hasn't entered into a romantic relationship with you exclusive or otherwise. And so isn't going to disappoint you if as she gets to know you a little better, she determines that she doesn't feel for you the way you obviously feel for her. So she wants to put the brakes on this and slow the roll, slow your roll. So she has a little bit more space and time in which to get to know you better and determine again whether she feels for you the way you feel for her. That said, 
you're not going to want to put off other people indefinitely because it could be in this stage of your relationship with her where you're being friends and she's getting to know you better and deciding whether she wants to be in a romantic or sexual relationship with you. You may meet somebody else who is a really good partner for you and you don't want to say to that person, okay, well, you know, I can't really date you right now or and you have to know that there's somebody else out there that is my ultimate goal right now. Somebody else that I would rather be in a serious relationship with than you. Because you could say that to two or three people who are your 0.64s or 0.78s, the folks you could easily round up to one, the one. And she could decide in three months or six months or a year, however long she wants to draw this out, that she doesn't feel for you the way that you feel for her. And, and you will have past on other people that you could have been with in that time if you're just in a holding pattern waiting for her to come along. So yeah, anyway, I don't really think you need me. I think you just need to think about how long you're willing to wait for this friendship thing to play out before she's willing to go all in with you or at least go all into dating you romantically, sexually, not just friends hanging out and then stick to that. If it's three months, if it's six months that you're willing to be in this holding pattern, then be in that holding pattern for three or six months. But if it goes past that point, you need to act as if this isn't going to happen and then be delightfully surprised in the end if it does. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with a guest. Purity balls, purity rings, we've seen the creepy videos, we've shared them on social media, we've had a laugh, but my guest argues that the purity industry does very real harm to young women who are caught up, trapped, raised in evangelical families. Joining me by phone, Linda K. Klein, author of Pure Inside the Evangelical Movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Hey, Linda, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, jumping on the phone today. Uh, Do I call you Linda or Linda K.? Is K. part of the last name or part of the first name? Yep. Uh, K. is actually my matriarchal line. It's my mom's middle name. So I go by it when I use my full name, but otherwise you can just call me Linda. Well, thanks for jumping on the phone. Um, So you went to New York University. Is that where you started to walk away from the evangelical movement and see it for what it is? Are you uh, an example that conservative evangelicals are going to cite about why you shouldn't let your daughters go to college? (laughs) So I actually went to NYU for my graduate work, but I actually went to Sarah Lawrence for undergrad, which is perhaps an even more extreme transition. I had been uh, all signed up to go to Bible college my senior year of high school and uh, and then had had a catalytic experience that uh, changed my my course and changed my direction and I ended up going to one of the most progressive colleges in the country for undergrad and that was in many ways um, you know the the beginning of a deconstruction of what I've been raised with so what was that catalytic experience that you had that made you move from Bible college to lesbian college? <laughs> so I went to uh, Australia my senior year of high school. So I was studying abroad. I was away from my community for the first time in my life and uh, looking at everything, uh, you know, from a distance. And at around the same time, my parents sent me a couple of articles from my hometown. And uh, my youth pastor, my former youth pastor, was convicted, I learned, of child enticement with the intent to have sexual contact with a 12-year-old girl in our youth group. That shocks and, me. Wait, can I just interrupt you there? That shocks me not at all. I have been for a decade doing a regular series on my blog and on my Twitter now called Youth Pastor Watch. 
where I just tweet out or write about all the rapey youth pastors out there. As I like to say, if kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers, it would be illegal to take your kid to a circus. Yeah, and you know, the part that was the most difficult for me was not just learning that this had happened in my church, but reading that it had actually happened um, in two other evangelical institutions before our church, and that the youth pastor had essentially admitted to doing the same thing in those communities as he had done in our community, but that he was silently moved on. And that was really what began to expose to me the potential for systemic abuse and systemic harm. Um, and I really started to look at some of the teachings that I was receiving in the church, particularly around sexuality and this idea of sexual purity, and see it in a completely new light. And what were the teachings that you were subjected to about sexual purity, particularly where women and, young, and girls are concerned? Yeah, the core teaching is that everybody, uh, you know, um, you know, across the gender spectrum is defined as either pure or impure. But if you are a girl or a woman, that is particularly intense for you because girls and women are not only shamed for our own sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors, but we are also shamed for the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others, particularly men toward us that we are said to have inspired via how we walk or how we talk or how we dress. So this idea of purity, um, you know, was so much more intense in the requirements to maintain it for girls and women. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, ultimately, the idea of purity was also something that uh, that was particularly we were particularly held to. So, for example, I was talking with a gentleman the other day who grew up in the evangelical church and he said, you know, I just felt like I was always, you know, being told that I had messed up or I was afraid that I had messed up. And I said to him, you know, that's in many ways a luxury. We didn't get to mess up. You know, we became messed up as a girl or a woman. You become impure. You go from wife material to lucky if any man is going to love you within this church, church community's teachings. And uh, so it's an embodiment teaching. Elizabeth Smart wrote a, a book about her experience. She was the, the, the Mormon uh, young woman who was kidnapped and, and raped by her captors. Uh, and she wrote in her book that what she had been taught was that a, a girl who was not a virgin had no value. And so after she was raped, she didn't value herself, which is the reason she didn't flee her captors, because she didn't think she'd be welcomed back into her family or her community. So she had nothing to flee to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she actually talks about an object lesson sometimes when she describes, um, you know, what she was feeling when she was being held captive, which is a very common teaching in the purity movement as well. So an object lesson, I'll give you an example. This is one that was told to me by an interviewee, but I've heard countless versions. So she talks about how she was in a, a group of her peers, and the woman in front of the room held up an Oreo cookie and said, okay, who wants this Oreo cookie? Everybody raises their hand, of course. Everyone wants the cookie. And then she passes the cookie around the room and she instructs every young person to spit on it or to drop it on the ground. By the time it gets back to the front of the room, it's disgusting. And then she holds it up again and she says, okay, now who wants this Oreo cookie? Nobody raises their hand. And it's expressed as an illustration for what happens to a girl or woman before um, she's had sexual experience when she's wanted by everyone and after she's had sexual experience when she's no longer going to be wanted by anyone. And they don't say the same shit to boys. Boys can apparently wash off the spit and the dirt, but girls can't. Yep, exactly. Exactly. They can mess up. We become messed up. So did you get dragged to a purity ball? Did your dad give you a purity ring? Those excesses that are just so transparently 
patriarchal, creepy, incesty? Did you go through that? No, I actually didn't go through purity um, balls. And we did have purity rings. That was that was common in our youth group, but I never wore a purity ring. But I definitely signed a purity pledge. You may remember those. Um, mm-hmm. Those were uh, sort of promises, a uh, kind of contract that you would sign that you wouldn't have sex before marriage. But, you know, the fact that there are all of these things, that there are purity rings and balls and pledges and curricula and videos and T-shirts and really you name it, is illustrative of this purity industry that really came out of the purity movement that started in the early 1990s that I definitely grew up in. So though I might not have gone to balls, you know, they were part of my my extended world. So you're also a part of the ex-evangelical. How do you pronounce that word? I see it on Twitter. There's this movement of ex-evangelicals and they have this neologism, ex-evangelical. How do you pronounce that? Yeah, ex-evangelical. Ex-evangelical. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm actually not. I'm actually not an active member of that group, um, though. I will tell you that for a long time, it's a title that I used. I used to say ex-evangelical. Um, I don't. I don't describe myself that way anymore, though. It's still accurate. But you know, it was one that I used for a long time after I left, and I think the reason is because I felt like. I didn't know what to claim. All I knew was what I wasn't. I didn't know what I was now. All I knew was that I wasn't that, but that that thing that I was was still so much a part of me that I could only identify in opposition to it. (laughs) Uh, You know, and it took me a long time and a lot of years to be able to come to another place and to another understanding of who I was, if not that. And claiming your sexuality. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I had to find a way to, um, to be a whole person. And, and for me, you know, that, that became a point where I started to see that sexuality and spirituality were by no means mutually exclusive and was able to reclaim my Christianity on totally new terms. Well, that's good <laughs> for you. I wasn't able to do that. I mean, I, I wouldn't compare, you know, the, the, the shaming that, that gay kids undergo, particularly in the Catholic tradition that I was raised in, with the kind of mauling that, that, that young women are subjected to in the evangelical movement. But there was that sense of I can't be – I'm not legitimate. My desires aren't legitimate. I can't act on these. And to act on them is to, to sin or to be sin itself, sin personified. And I had to walk away from that. But for me, that meant walking away from not just Catholicism but faith entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people are in your shoes. You know, it, it, really, it really is um, – I think very painful to to be in a particular worldview that that is your whole life, <laughs> you know, for many people, so, and uh, and to not fit the human being that you are, to not fit within it. You call it the purity industry. Uh, it shames and warps the lives of young women. Uh, it's patriarchal. It seeks to control women and girls. Uh, convinces women and girls that they are without value if they have desire, if they've acted on their desires. Who's profiting on this industry? Yeah, this is not, I think, an industry where too many people are getting rich. Um, it's really an industry, um, a moral industry, right? It's an industry that is selling products um, to to spread a moral, quote unquote, moral message. Uh, you know, there are some folks who are producing sort of larger industry leaders like the folks who own the book publishing companies and things like that who are benefiting. But for the most part, these products are, are, are really not, it's not about making money. It's about, it's about making, um, 
in, a, a dent in society and a dent in the world. And it absolutely has. So, you know, so certainly, you know, when you're a young person, let's say you spend 15 bucks on a ring, you know, nobody's going to get rich off that 15 bucks, um, you know, but your life is going to be utterly changed by looking down at your finger and seeing that commitment that you made to being quote unquote pure, which uh, is defined differently by everybody within the community. So you never quite know when you're going to lose your purity because some people feel like if you even have a close uh, friendship with somebody of the opposite sex, that that could potentially be a risk to your purity because you would be emotionally cheating on your husband someday. Whereas other people feel that you could do everything other than have penis and vagina sex before marriage and you could maintain your purity. So you're never quite sure when you're going to lose it. And you keep looking down at that ring finger, right? Mm -hmm. And and now, you know, every choice that you're making or every choice that's being made for you, since you're also being blamed for the thoughts and feelings of others and the choices of others, you know, this this anxiety um, that uh, that these physical productized reminders gives you uh, is a... Uh, is can be overwhelming. And to your point around, um, you know, having to leave, you know, for many people, it, that anxiety never goes away. So your mother sent you that link when you were studying abroad, your senior year of high school, uh, about the rapey youth pastor in your church. And it, you know, the scales fell from your eyes, and it really changed how you felt about the faith tradition in which you were raised, what you had been taught uh, about sex and sexuality and about purity. Um, and you didn't, and you didn't walk away from Christianity. But you transformed your relationship with Christianity. You're a different kind of Christian. You left the evangelical church. What's your relationship with your family like now that you have come out as ex-evangelical? Hmm. So it was actually not a link. This was before before we were sending each other links. They sent me a newspaper article, and uh, and and I, you know. So anyway, just a just a little <laughs> flashback in time, right? Clippings. Um, yeah, my know, mother used to call herself the yeah. Mad Clipper and send us newspaper clippings in the mail that then became links exactly. later. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, my folks have definitely been on a journey with me. I, I have been doing um, this work for 12 years now. I left, um, you know, the evangelical community because of these purity teachings maybe 20 years ago or so is when I started to leave. And um, and then ultimately, you know, suffered in silence for a very long time, feeling like I was alone, the only one who was suffering from sexual shame and fear and anxiety that was uh, sometimes manifesting um, in ways that mimic PTSD until I actually started to to talk to some of the girls that I grew up with in my home church and my youth group and tell them about what I was experiencing and then sat with my jaw, just dropped the floor as they told me the same stories. Now, that was about 12 or 13 years ago that I first um, started to really understand that I wasn't alone and started this intentional journey of healing, which um, started with me going back to my hometown and calling up all the girls I'd grown up with in my youth group and, and doing a year of story exchange with them about their own adult experiences, having been raised within the purity movement. And that became the catalyst for years of interviews, interviewing um, you know people around the country who were raised in communities like my own, these white American evangelical communities as girls. And so, you know, my, my parents have been aware of this the entire time because this has been a substantial part of my life. You know, this hasn't been casual <laughs> on the side, right? Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this has been a, a, a pilgrimage, if you will, right? Um, which has involved looping back home over and over and over again and looping back to, to my community and my people. And, you know, there were moments in that journey when my parents and my mom in particular were utterly 
I'm absolutely terrified. And my mom in particular, you know, her greatest fear was that, you know, questioning these purity teachings and questioning the authority of the church was going to um, send some people to, to not trust the church and to not join the church and therefore to not go to heaven. And that I was going to be responsible for all of these people's eternal damnation because I, you know, wanted to tell the ugly truths of what was happening and that I would be held responsible eternally for having done that and that she would be in heaven one day and she would not be with me uh, because I wouldn't be there. Is she over that yet? She has come to, you know, we've been talking this whole time. We have been crying. We've been staying up until three in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's been such a wrestle. And, uh, and have, very wait, wait, recently... Wait. Have you confronted your parents? They raised you in this faith tradition that shamed you, warped your yeah, sexuality, yeah. warped your sense of self, um, that damaged you. You know, shamed a generation. You were part of that generation. You were shamed and, and harmed by the choices your parents made for you? And have they taken responsibility for the harm that they did you? You know, I don't think I've, I don't think that I uh, look at it that way because first of all, I actually, um, I actually joined the evangelical church when I was 13. My mom was already evangelical. She had been born again, but we were attending an Episcopalian church, which is very different, you know, Mm -hmm. mainline Christianity. And um, my mom and I were sort of this evangelical community of two. My, um, my brother had been born again. My mom had been born again. And then when I was 13, I was born again. And so I sort of tipped the familial scale. And, you know, we began attending an evangelical church at that point. And I, you know, had the fervor of a convert. You know, this was not something that was foisted upon me by any means. This is something that I, uh, I fell in love with the radical message of um, acceptance that, um, that had brought me within the community in the first place and the teachings around unconditional love that unfortunately, you know, proved out to be conditional. Acceptance of everything except your natural sexual desires and agency. And plenty of other things as well. Do you yeah. Think, do you think maybe that, that, that you were drawn toward evangelical Christianity at 13, really puberty, in, in part because of a, a fear of your own burgeoning sexuality? I do think for a lot of adolescents, there's this moment when puberty kicks in, desire kicks in, and that's terrifying. And it's scary. That's you know, we, we, we hear about sex from our parents when we're very young, when we're little children. We want to know where babies came from. We want to know where we came from. They tell us about sex and invariably, in almost all cases, our reaction when we're four, five, six, seven, and we're getting that download is, that's disgusting. How could you do that? I will never do that. And then along comes puberty eight or nine years later, and puberty says, guess what? You now are going to do that and want to do that. And I think that's scary. I think there's a kind of sex negativity that's because of our extended childhoods, our long childhoods, um, that, that is almost hardwired into the human experience. And then puberty slams into that sex negativity, that kind of disgust with those things adults do. And you realize, oh, no, you've been drafted into this sexy pervert army too, kind of against your will. And you see a lot of kids who are 12, 13, 14 years old flee into some sex negative clique of some sort or another to, to take refuge because they're not ready to be sexual. Yeah, and that is something I have heard. I've not just heard that from adolescents. I've heard that from adults who join, you know, because we we don't do a great job of talking about sexuality as a culture. So, you know, so sometimes people are joining the evangelical church just because, yeah, they do, they do see it as a refuge. 
Um, well, there's certainly a lot you of know, closet not, cases, not a lot of gay and lesbian by closet cases in the evangelical church who are in flight from their sexuality. Uh, I have one last question for you. Um, yeah. I, I have a lot of listeners and I hear from a lot of people um, who are where you were 12 or 20 years ago, who were raised in a very sex negative faith tradition, many evangelicals, and who find their way to this show and it becomes their sex education. It becomes the thing that helps them unpack their shame. It becomes the thing that helps them learn not to judge or shame others. If there are listeners out there right now who are 18, 19, 20 years old or 15, 16 years old who are raised in the kind of purity, shaming, evangelical faith tradition or, or, or were sucked into it at 13 the way you were sucked into it, do you have any advice for them in their process? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, the whole reason I wrote this book was was because I had to go through such an extensive process to break free. Um, and for me, it really was the process of this this story exchange. You know, I essentially put myself through 12 years of narrative therapy. You know, I told my story over and over and over again, and I listened to people tell me, you know, versions of my own story with details being different, but core themes of shame and fear and anxiety being the same in a way that helps me to separate myself from much of what I was experiencing that I had been told I was experiencing because I was impure or um, broken in some way. Um, And the more that I heard my experiences in the stories of others, the more that I was able to start to point to, okay, this isn't inherently in me, right? This isn't inherently my brokenness. Um, You know, it's in too many of our stories for us all to be broken, for us all to be bad, right? Um, something, Something that was taught to us Um, was broken, and we need to contend with that. So the experience of coming into uh, a deep, soul-guttural knowing that I wasn't alone, not hoping that I wasn't alone, suspecting that I wasn't alone, but the knowing that I wasn't alone, which was really only possible when I came into community and started doing this story exchange, was the first step. Um, for my healing. And I really am a believer that um, it's very hard to break free alone, that, um, that, this, that this work really can only be done together. Pure inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Out now by Linda K. Klein. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Linda. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Hey, Dan. I'm a bi guy out in Philadelphia. So I have a question about male unicorns because I consider myself one, but I feel like the name is a little lame and I've talked to some other poly people and the actual unicorns, women don't like me calling myself a unicorn, male unicorn. I don't like it either. So I've come up with some other options. I've heard centaur, which is also lame in my opinion. I actually like stallion. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Also, just some questions about how I would approach a couple that I liked because I've been with couples before, but we've always met at strange ceremonies like at weddings or I don't know what it is. It's never been at like a bar or anything. And I was wondering if you had any good pickup lines that you could think of for a stallion, let's say like myself. They're called unicorns. These bisexual women who are open to being in a relationship and an exclusive relationship usually with an opposite sex couple where the woman is bi and they call them unicorns because they are hard to come by and in and on. 
And the hunt, the, the, the search for that partner can feel like the search for the mythical beast. You're never going to land. Of course, there are actual unicorns out there. There are triad relationships where there was the primary couple and they went out and they found that unicorn. So not exactly unicorns, unicorns, but close enough and hear all the time from couples who are looking for that very special woman and having a hard time finding her. It's easier to get dick than it is to get pussy because women have to factor in violence, slut shaming, all sorts of things that men don't have to factor in and, and don't take into consideration. So a guy like you isn't going to be as scarce as a woman who is a unicorn. So I think stallion is a pretty good name because stallions aren't mythical beasts. Stallions are just male horses that have not been castrated. And so I would call yourself a stallion. The guy open to dating a couple in gay land, we just call that a horse, not a unicorn. I think in straight land or by land, you could call yourself a stallion. You're a little rarer. It sounds a little bit more exciting than just plain old horse. But go for it. I would embrace stallion. I think stallion works. As for the pickup lines, I don't know what kind of a pickup line you could deploy in a bar in a moment when you notice an opposite sex couple and you're attracted to both of them. Because you don't know if they're in an open relationship. You don't know if the guy is bi. And if they are in an open relationship, even if he is bi, do they have one of those silly one dick rules that other women are fine, but other men are not allowed because he's too insecure? The internet is your pickup line. Put yourself out there on all the usual and even the more unusual dating apps and relationship websites as a bi male interested in dating an opposite sex couple. And I'm sure you'd have more luck with that strategy than approaching random couples in public and springing your stallionness on them. Hey, Dan. I've got a question about uh, cleanliness and preparation. I'm a cis guy living in the Midwest. Uh, my fiance and I have been open to butt play since the beginning of our relationship, and she's really into pegging me and playing with my ass, and we would like to do that more often. Um, she's super open to me playing with her butt, and somehow it's always squeaky clean. Um, yeah, on the other hand, it's pretty much a Santorum-ish situation every time. That is, unless I spend a good amount of time planning ahead and a good amount of time in the bathroom, cleaning everything, making sure it's good to go. Um, we both want sp more spontaneity and access to my butt, but I haven't been able to get to the point where I can confidently let her down there unless I go through this whole arduous cleaning routine and... So I guess my question is, do you or any listeners have any advice on how to keep your booty ready for spontaneous action? Get a balanced diet, eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, take a fiber supplement, get to know when you're regular, get a sense of when you're good to go, and then you've got to roll your dice and move your mice up your butt, and hopefully when you take your mice back out, they're not covered in Santorum. It is literally, figuratively, occasionally going to be a crapshoot unless you prep each and every time, unless you spend a lot of time in the bathroom. And I assume what you mean by that is you are in the bathroom douching. And some folks need to douche each and every time if they want the assurance that there will be no Santorum, not one single speck. Others can get a sense of when they're good to go and usually they're right, but occasionally shit happens. Oh my God, every cliche applies. Every scatological cliche applies. Crapshoot, shit happens. Yeah, comes with 
comes in the territory. And if you are super crap phobic or one little speck of Santorum is going to put your partner off your ass for months and months and months, then you don't want to risk it. Then you're going to want to get in there and douche. So yeah, if you have a not ideal diet, if it's a lot of slimy ass, loose stool inducing fast food and Coke and coffee and not a lot of fresh water, not a lot of fresh vegetables and not those fiber supplements if you want a little extra credit effort down there, then you're going to have to do what you're doing, which is douche, which means spontaneous butt play is going to involve her butt and not your butt. Hi, Dan. I am a hetero lady in a monogamous relationship and I'm in a kind of strange situation. So we've been together for like three years. We're super in love. It's going really great. Like I really feel like I found true love with this person. He's really supportive. Sex is awesome. We're really affectionate with each other. And we're like family. We really like plan to be married and plan to spend our lives together. It's all great. But there's just this one thing, which is that he is a sex worker. And uh, he was very upfront with me at the beginning of our relationship that he is a financial dom to gay men. I consider myself sex positive and I totally am for sex workers' rights. I think they do important work and they always have. I just don't know if I want him to do it. It's his body and his choice and he's been doing it much longer than I've known him. But it just makes me kind of skeeved out a little, to be honest. The tricky part is that I do benefit from it. The man that he doms pays for our car payments and sometimes we've been really low on money and then all of a sudden we weren't low on money. And my boyfriend and I don't talk about it. Like we just it's just understood that's happening and it's a don't ask, don't tell situation. And that's okay, but I I do think about it a lot. And part of me really wants to know what they do together. I know it's not just financial. I don't want to know at the same time. I really don't know what to do. It's not like going to ruin our relationship. And he's so supportive and wonderful that he would stop anytime if I asked him to. But like I said, I benefit from this situation. It just kind of skews me out a little bit. I Tell me what to do, Dan. Honestly, it would skeeve me out too. And I consider myself a pretty sex positive person. There are cases out there where people who were in fin-dom relationships, financial domination relationships, the dom took from the sub life savings, made them sign over property to them, impoverished them basically. And that seems exploitative in the context of a dom-sub relationship. There are, however, fin-doms out there who take 100 here, 100 there from someone who can afford it and who enjoys it, who enjoys being dominated in that way, being treated as I believe the term of art in that sexual subculture puts it as a cash pig. Some guys really get off on that. And I think, you know, when people get involved in DS relationships, they need to keep their wits about them and they need to submit, but there should be limits and doms need to be responsible. With great power comes great responsibility and perhaps your Boyfriend could encounter a sub who was willing to sign over property, give him absolutely everything, his life savings. It wouldn't be responsible of your boyfriend to take that from him. But if we're talking about a sub who is a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy gay lawyer or doctor or businessman and it isn't 
much skin off his ass or dosh out of his wallet for him to pay for your car and your boyfriend's car and occasionally bail you two out and your boyfriend benefits and you benefit and the Finn sub in this relationship enjoys this and isn't being ruined or exploited or taken advantage of, then I will allow it. Not that I could stop it. That's really up to you whether you want to put an end to this. It might make you more comfortable if you could have a conversation with your boyfriend about what else goes on besides raiding his cash pigs' wallets and bank accounts. What else goes on? Is there sexual contact? There are some people out there, men and women, who do erotic domination services because sexual contact isn't necessarily a part of that world. It could be that he just allows this fin sub to masturbate in front of him or kiss his feet or there may be some incidental DSE kind of contact but not sexual contact. That might put your mind at ease to know exactly what it is your boyfriend provides for his subs beyond the demands that he makes on them, that they have eroticized, that they enjoy. So if I were you, I would have a conversation with your boyfriend. I myself personally would love to have a conversation with your boyfriend because you hear a lot about fin doms and there are a lot of pro doms out there who take a very dim view of people doing fin dom work, who regard it as low bar, exploitative, a kind of professional domination that attracts people who don't have their sub's best interests at heart, to put it mildly. You know your boyfriend. You love your boyfriend. You're imagining a future with your boyfriend. If he does this sort of professional domination work in an ethical way, if he isn't taking advantage, if he isn't ruining anyone, everyone's benefiting, you included. But I would encourage you to do your due diligence. You do not want to be a party to someone else's financial ruin. If his sub is a closeted gay man with a wife and a couple of kids and they're barely making the rent and they can't afford food, this is wrong. What your boyfriend is doing is wrong and exploitative. But again, if it's some wealthy dude and this is how he enjoys spending his money and he's not harming himself in the process or harming his family or dependents, more power or car payments to you and your boyfriend. All right, before we get to listener comments, a few listener tweets. At C. Morley, 87 tweets, Oh my God, Nancy casually calling that man a cowardly scrot during the convo about his potential vasectomy is the best thing I've heard this week. Dan, you're great, but we also need more Nancy. I completely agree I get Nancy on the show as often as I can. She's just microphone shy. At Danny Knox tweets, Savage Lovecast from the one and only Dan Savage, still my only paid podcast subscription. Thank you, Danny, for being a Magnum subscriber. And at N. Wanzerski tweets, attempting to do crunches at the Y while listening to Dan Savage try to sell me a bidet is my American Ninja Warrior. Happy I could be along for your American Ninja Warrior, Nick. All right, if you want us to read your tweet on a future show, remember to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Now, some comments. Vasectomies. Love them. Getting one on Friday. That said, um, they are not necessarily reversible. There is a procedure, but it doesn't have the same success rate as vasectomies do. So I think the browbeating tone for the guy who doesn't want to get one um, before he's even married isn't necessarily warranted. It should always be on the table, but it is semi-permanent and it is a decision that should be made carefully 
just because a guy doesn't want to get one because he says he doesn't want to have kids doesn't mean he's fully probed that question or uh, is ready to rule it out entirely. He doesn't know what the future may bring. And I think uh, the browbeating tone is uh, is a little unwarranted. Dan, calling with a comment about the ladies whose fiancé was balking at the idea of a vasectomy. I'm here to sing the praises of that very minor medical procedure. Uh, first of all, it's quick. It took about 15 minutes for the actual thing. I was in and out of the doctor's office within an hour. It takes a stitch, one stitch. So the recovery is similar to nicking your balls while shaving. And if there's any lingering pain, I had a little bit. It was like being kicked in the nuts whenever I, I took the bandage off. But they give you a bottle full of pain pills. And probably the most important thing that was not mentioned, if you have decent insurance, it's dirt cheap. Mine costs $35 and one weekend of recovery and no more kids for me and my wife. Tell that dude he needs to get over it. I rate a vasectomy 10 out of 10. I'd have another one if I could. I have to say vasectomy, absolutely number one best thing that's ever happened for my sex life. Don't have to worry about uh, accidentally having a baby. Don't worry. Don't have to worry about using condoms. Don't have to worry about uh, remembering to take the pill. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Even though I ended up with a massively painful scrotal hematoma about six weeks after having it done uh, by being headbutted by my two-year-old kid, that healed up absolutely no problem. So yeah, get it done. You wimp. So I'm 51 years old. I got a vasectomy when I was 50. I regret not getting one at 20. I'm having the best sex of my life, literally the best sex of my life. You have no idea how great it is to have sex with a woman who is ovulating with no condoms and no worry of getting her pregnant and just like, dumping that huge load right up inside her ovulating non-birth control, like raging pussy. Like you have, it's the best. It's the best is the best. One thing's for sure is women behave totally different when she doesn't have to take any hormones. Oh my God. It's just so amazing to just be with my partner and not have any worries at all. It's the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I think everyone should get one. Go get one at Planned Parenthood. They're nearly free. The recovery is easy. And like I said, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. This is in response to the woman in episode 629 who asked her fiance to get a vasectomy and he freaked out. Dude, man the fuck up. You don't want kids, but you want her to insert an IUD even though it was so painful and made her faint just so you can keep your sperm? What is fucking wrong with you men? We women use birth controls that tank our libido, that sponges that give us infections, diaphragms of all that sticky goo. But when a guy is done making babies or doesn't want them in the first place, he won't get a 30-minute procedure so his woman doesn't have to put herself through all that for the next 15 years. Stop being such a douche and do what my amazing husband did, get a vasectomy. You'll have more spontaneous sex with a happier partner. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hard to shop for Trump haters on your list. Go to itmfa.org. Get them a t-shirt. Get them a sweatshirt. Get them a mug. Get them a sticker. Get them a lapel pin. Get them all the impeach the motherfucker already gear. A Trump hater could want. 
And you can also give the gift of the Lovecast if you know someone who's a micro-listener who might benefit from or really enjoy the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on Gift and Gift them the Lovecast. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Linda K. Klein on Twitter at Linda K. Klein. K is spelled K-A-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.